Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend Ann Chavruta, your Dana Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Psachim, daf Kofchet. Before we jump in, we want to, of course, always remind everybody that our seum is in just about two weeks. Uh, we want, you know, if you haven't signed up yet, please do so. If you'd like to speak, please let us know. We welcome all comers for brief divrei Torah and reflections on this Masachet. Um, okay, now. What I would have to say about this daf is that it is chock full, meaning there are a lot of things that we know about Pesach, that we live about Pesach, and that you don't necessarily worry about where the source is, and then you might expect that there be, I don't know, a full daf for each little thing that we know for our reality, and here I would say that it goes through, it goes by very, very quickly. The daf is not long, and yet it covers and touches on many, many different topics. So the first one that I'm going to talk about, and then I'm going to hand off to your, you, your Dana, is about Rav Sheshit. Rav Sheshit, you'll recall, Rav Sheshit is our blind Amora, and he's uh, he's sharp. You know, he's he's got a lot to say, and he conducts himself uh, accordingly. You know, in the, I would say in a very, at least from what we've seen, in a very yashar, very a straight, um, upright kind of way, which we would expect of everybody, of course. But I, I for some reason, I have this perception of Rav Sheshit in particular. Rav Sheshit haviyafe betanita kol malayoma de pischa. On Erev Yantif, on Erev Pesach, the whole time, the whole day, Rav Sheshit would fast. Meaning the idea here is, of course, the concern, well, there's two issues, right? Nowadays, we know about two different fasts that can happen on Erev Pesach. One is the fast, Tani Bechor, the idea that the firstborn should fast in, um, I don't, not atonement, but, you know, in, in recognizing the fact that, um, that they were not taken, right? That the firstborn were skipped over. Uh, when the firstborn of the Egyptians were not. Um, but there's another factor, and this, that's not this. I mean, that's not what this is being discussed here. The The other factor is that if you want to have an appetite for matzah, for Leil HaSeder, which we've already talked about, right? And the idea here is that, um, the idea here is that he was a sensitive enough, he was sensitive enough physically that he would make sure to fast to keep the appetite. So, Right? Meaning there is this concern, what if, what if he's the firstborn? But that's not what's going on here, because um, rather the Gemara continues to talk about, it. I've seen the translation here as delicate. The phrase in Hebrew is istinus. He was an istinus, which I always think of it as being perhaps sensitive. Sometimes I, 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 I think of it differently. It's like someone who's like body conscious, like... They need to be showered. They like to be clean. They're a little particular about what they eat. They're like, they're just a little so, body conscious. That's I why I was into that category. I think of it as particular. I think that there's, you can be an istinus for cleanliness and you can be an istinus for food, right? And they're not exact, one could be for both also, but they're not, they don't have to be the same. I Today, we might line this up with, you know, OCD inclinations, tendencies, not necessarily clinical, but something where, where you're more sensitive, as you say, Yordina, to the whatever it is in this physicality. So I I um sort of Shesha in this way would make sure that he would not eat the whole day because, and the Gemara here says, the if he had anything to eat even in the morning, mechla. If he then by the evening, meaning when it's time for the seder, he wouldn't. He still wouldn't have any real interest or or take pleasure in the food. So I think that that is an uncommon state, um, or at least an uncommon healthy state 
but I think that there, by the same token, we also know people who are sensitive in that way, and that if you, you know, the idea of fasting on erev Pesach to keep yourself, you know, geared towards being hungry for the seder, is is not as foreign to me anyway as as some might think. Um, yeah, this nice little piece of Rashid. I also it should be in contrast with what we talked about in the previous set where Rava would drink wine the whole day before. So I think it also just shows you some of these halachot of like these customs, they're a little bit specific to the person. In other words, different ways of doing it, uh, you know, particularly this period of time before Pesach, this Arab Pesach time, which we know in itself is almost its own holiday. Um, you know, different things will be meaningful to different people. And so I see, I think we see that playing itself out by bringing different examples of the different customs of the different Amorayim. Um, and they're all preparing, meaning all of this is preparing for the Seder night as opposed to just however they want to go about their regular day. It's not a regular day. Right. I, again, that's why I think the 14th is almost like its own holiday. Um, I want to jump down to uh, this section here. We start actually now really getting into a little bit about the actual, um, uh, you know, customs around the Seder itself. And we quote here a Mishnah that talks about, you know, that even the poorest of Jews, right, they don't necessarily, right, they don't eat until they actually recline. And then the Gemara goes on to say that the Amorayim talk about the different requirements to recline, right, that for matzah you must recline, but for Mara you don't need to recline. And with wine, right, uh, but Rav Nachman, we have these two statements, one where he says with the wine, you do need to recline, and one where he says you don't need to recline. And so the Gemara is now going to explain this. Right? So we're saying the statement could refer to the last, the first two cups, and the other statement could refer to uh, the last two cups. In other words, he was talking about two different cups here. Right. And what do we say? Imri la, right? Others would say laha gisa, the imri la laha gisa. Right. Or some would say that it was meant in this manner, and some would say it was meant in that manner. Trace kase kamai baal haseba, da hashahu da kamit la cheru, tre kase batre lo baal haseba, mai zahabe habat. Right. So the Gemara explains that maybe the first two cups you need reclining. Because that's when freedom begins. In other words, reclining is the sign of freedom. And when we're talking about the actual Yitziat Mitzrayim, which really is what takes place during the first two cups. So remember, the first cup is Kiddush. The second cup is during Magid. The third cup is part of benching. And the fourth cup, you know, we do after benching at the end. So that second cup is the one that's really associated with the story of the actual Yitziat Mitzrayim. And that's why you would recline. But the last two cups, they don't really need reclining because, you know, it already was. In other words, we've already completed the part where we thought about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, we thought about becoming free, and so you don't really need to recline anymore. That's not what you're doing. That's not the meaning of those two cups. But the Imri la, lahai lagisa, right? But no, we're going to say differently. Adarab, right? The opposite. Trey kase ba, trey ba haseba, hahisha atahab echeru. Trey kase kame lo ba haseba, ta'achte abadim hayeno. That the first, the, that the last two cups are the ones that need reclining because that's the time of freedom. In other words, you're drinking those after you completed the story. But I don't think it's just about completing the story. I think what we're seeing here already is 
this train of thought that's apparent all throughout the Seder, right, or all the uh, customs that we do on the night of Pesach, which is the idea that we are supposed to see ourselves as if we really were part of that story, right, that we ourselves are actually leaving Mitzrayim. And so therefore, it's the last two that's that period of Chayrim. We finished the whole story. We went out of Mitzrayim. And so we're going to end our meal with recline, reclining. Whereas the first two, it's beforehand. It's still It's still when we were slaves. We haven't gone through the process yet of the Seder itself. We ourselves personally have sort of almost in a way like not been freed yet. And that almost something tra- happens transformative. Um, I don't think it's as if. I think that's actually what happens at the Seder that we ourselves go from avadim to a state of chayrut, right? And so there right? So it was stated, and so it was stating, in other words, there's two conflicting opinions on the conflicting opinions of Rav Nachman, you know, but both, both of these sets, but so basically because you can't prove which are the two sets of cups that actually require reclining, in the end, what do we say? We're going to say, you know what? You actually should recline for all four. And that's actually what we do today. Um, but it's interesting to see the Gemara sort of work through, first of all, that it acknowledges that maybe it's only two according to Rav Nachman. It can justify either one. I think within the justification of both one, we see the reflection of this process that we're actually experiencing the miracle of Yitzhak Mitzrayim itself. But the question is, where do you put more importance? Is it on the first two cups or is it on the last two cups? And ultimately, the conclusion is, no, we're really just going to require Haseba. We're going to require reclining for all four cups because we really can't determine which which one it is. And that, you know, process or that act of reclining is so important. We're actually going to add on that you need to do it for all four. I just want to make a comment on the four cups, um, which... I don't know how many people have heard this story. I know that it goes around and it gets told in the name of different people, different Rabbanim. I grew up with it at my Seder table. You know, my grandfather told it at the, one of the two nights of the Sadarm every year, which is the question of the man who comes to the rabbi and asks and he uses milk for the four cups, right? And he's not talking about Haseba, right? He's just, it's asking a question of, is it permissible? And then the rabbi gives the man 25 rubles. And in my grandfather's rendition, you know, the rabbi's wife is very concerned that he gave 25 rubles. And he says to her, and my, again, in my grandfather's rendition, uh, you foolish woman, um, if he, you know, two of, the, two of the cups are before the meal and two are after the meal. And that means that if he didn't, you can't have milk after you've had meat. So if he's asking if he can use milk for the cups, then he also not only does he not have money for wine, he also doesn't have money for meat, right? And um, and then I later in life, I discovered, I heard this was told in the name of Rav Soloveitchik, um, and then that was corrected to be Rav Soloveitchik's great-great-great-great-grandfather, which is, it seems to be actually accurate. Um, and the reason I mentioned in the context, of course, of the four cups here is that the question of um, poverty and the question of luxuriance, right, which is supposed to be this freedom, that you're free to recline, which I always find a little bit uncomfortable. And I always wonder why this is such a symbol of, rec- of luxury, except for, I suppose, if you have the right kind of chairs and you're truly reclining in a chaise lounge, and maybe that really is the lap of luxury. Um, I think this story still is illustrative on this point, the idea that we make sure that those four cups are 
not going to be reflective of poverty. We make sure that no matter how indigent you are, we're going to try to make sure that you have, you know, a bore priagafe. Right. To make and not sure only that, cups. and the poor person, regardless of how they got those cups, they still behave as free as anybody else. They're not, you know, they're literally not a slave to poverty on that night. Um, I want to hop down to right. one thing on the bottom here, uh, which is, you know, the issue of women and the four kosot come up here. And, you know, we have a familiar theme that appears with other mitzvot that have to do with miracles. Right. Women are also obligated in these four cups of wine. Why? Because they also were part of the miracle of what happened with Yitzhak Mitzrayim, right, with the Exodus. And therefore, they have to participate just as much and have to remember just as much. And it's kind of interesting to me that that it needs to be said by Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, because I feel like the fact that women, other than that, you know, opinion of Rabbi Shimon, where everybody says that women have to participate in the Korban Pesach, why wouldn't women have to participate with all the other pieces of what happens that night, right? The Kosot, the Maror, the Matzah, all of those things. Um, and we don't, you know, so it's interesting to see Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi sort of make this point of and I sort of just wonder if, you know, again, Rabbi Shua ben Levi's living in a post-temple time, um, you know, did something happen that maybe some of these, when we sort of were not connected to the Korban Pesach anymore, did some of these things sort of come into question a little bit to, in terms of how women were participating and almost in a way he needs to remind us that women, you know, the wine is a very important part. It's not just about sort of enjoying a meal, right? We know that a nice meal would have wine with it, but that it's really an integral part of the Seder itself. And therefore women, because they're an integral part or really participated in the miracle of Yitzhak they also, you know, need to have these four cups of wine. So I've always heard, I, I always understood to be women were saved, right? The women were saved from Egypt the same way the men were saved. So they should be participating in the miracle in that way, right? They were redeemed from Egypt. But then at some point, I don't know, I heard the interpretation that said that because they were particularly instrumental in, in you know, bringing about Yitzhak Mitzrayim between the midwives and Miriam and, and Yocheved, right, and saving Moshe, without, the, without that, there would have been no exodus, or at least not in that way at that time. So that was always, you know, one of those two understandings was always my understanding. Now, in preparing this daf, I also saw an, yet another you read on why the women have a particular role here, which is that they actually may have suffered that much more during the suffering in Egypt, that it wasn't just a matter of slavery, but the oppression of the women in terms of, you know, on the one hand, they're being slaves and have to do all the work, but also they're doing, you know, there's this uh, claim anyway, I guess it's in the Midrash, that the women were forced to do men's work as well, right? Like there's a whole, and and plus of course, that they're giving up their babies, um, the idea here is that they suffered that much more. So of course, therefore they need to participate. I don't know that I like that interpretation better, but I think that it's worth mentioning just in the context of, you know, what does it mean? How yeah, are we I gonna think that's a great that? point. Okay. Um, and then lastly, we just want to hit, I'm a bet here. I said the other day that, um, you know, the wine that they drank in those days, in the, and I'm talking here about the time of the Gemara, not in the time of Egypt, uh, was um, was a thicker wine. And it needed, you couldn't just drink it straight. That would have been like drinking, I don't know what, syrup. Um, and so 
the Gemara here talks about exactly how they would dilute the wine in order to make it potable. Amr Yehuda, Amr Shmuel, Arba Kosot Halal Tzarich Sheyehe Behen Kedei Mezigat Kos Yafeh. They have to drink, they have to dilute the wine so that it would be a nice cup of wine. Now, there's a discussion of how much water really can go into this. There's all different ways that you could, if you drink it undiluted, what if you were to drink it undiluted, you fulfill your obligation. What if you had all four cups at once, right? Would you fulfill your obligation? Meaning, yes, you would. If you, you know, give it to other people to partake from as well. There's all different ways you can fulfill your obligation of the four cups of wine. But really my question here is, you know, how much, how thick was that wine? And the Gemara seems to be, you know, if we jump down to towards the bottom of the daf, uh, the Gemara seems to say that one fourth of the amount that would fill a cup was the wine and three fourths was the water by which it would be diluted. So, when they talk then about the four cups of the of the seder, they, the language is mazgulo kosrisho, mazgulo kosreni, that they would dilute for the person the cup of wine. That's you know nowadays we we translate that or we understand that to mean you pour the cup of wine, um, and I think people traditionally will have somebody else pour the cup of wine because that is the way of royalty rather than pouring your own. But the idea of mazgulo is that they would dilute that wine in that cup so that it would be you know, ready for drinking um, in a festive way. I What I like about the diluting wine piece is this seems ripe, you know, this type of thing with the cups, that how it's prepared actually should be important. And it seems that it's more just like you got to get the wine in in some form of four cups. But how you did it, if it was prepared the proper way, I don't know, they don't seem to be so caught up in that. And that seems so unhalachic. <laughs> Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, Usually we get so bogged in the details and like with the wine, they're kind of willing to give it a pass a little bit. Well, I'll tell you, so I've, you know, different years I've done different things for the four cups, both in terms of what I've drunk and also the cups that we used. When I was little, we had each of the grandchildren in my family would have a small silver cup with our names on it. I mean, we still have the cups, right? But they're not the full size of what you would have to have your, your four cups of wine. So one year, my cousin and I came in from Israel to go to the family seder, and we brought like really goblets, you know, that were the right size. And also then everybody could have the same thing and guests as well. It was just a very, you know, it was a nice thing for the seder, or at least we thought so. They're pretty, whatever. But when, but we asked about it, like, could you just have, because I used to drink two of the little, little cups that I had from my childhood. And the rav that I asked said, no, no, it all has to be in one cup, right? So that you can have your kos for the four for the four coast, so you each one has to be its own cup, and then you read this duff, and and as I was preparing, I was like, it seems much more flexible, much more malleable, much more forgiving, I would say, right. than anything and, and we do today. Way- you know, now when you have like a a form of a matzah, a form of a cup. It has to be the full cup. Yeah, and it's, and just in a way that I think we don't normally think of halacha, right? That usually the details, how much, how you mixed it, the volume, and you get the impression, just like you said, it's just sort of like, have your four cups, you're good, <laughs> and 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 you fulfilled the mitzvah. So I that was striking to me here. It seems very different, um, and also I think because, as you said, the seder in particular has evolved in some circles, not in all circles. 
to have this whole culture around the shiurim and how much matzah and how much mower and how much wine. That does not seem to be the case here on this stuff at all. I kind of would like it if we would paskin like from the daf right now, but I don't think that we do. <laughs> you know, like I feel like there's something much more relaxed about this, and there is something freeing about that when you're dealing with shiurim and, and cups of wine. But you know, and times, how many people are drinking so fast to, ma- to make sure that they get it within the amount of time that you could have the, the full amount of the coast? And in the meantime, I feel like I don't know, that does not seem so royal. So, that does I, not seem I so that I actually free at a Seder with a particular relative who is very, very careful about the shiurim and you know, was reclining and eating matzah and wanted to get in time. It actually was not nice, like it was, it was a mess. There were crumbs everywhere. Like there was something about it that you're like, this is not what it was meant to be. But I'm sure we'll talk about that at another time. That's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Robin and Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.